you have your Bible, take it and go to Revelation chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one nearby you, maybe in the pew rack in front of you or possibly even underneath a chair that you might be sitting on. Revelation, as you might know, is near the end of the Bible, and in the copy of the Scripture that we have available to you, you'll find that on page 1041. It's like the second to the last page. I met a lot of new people this morning, and I'm so thrilled that you are here. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, I am relatively new to New England. I have uh, moved, my family and I moved here in October, and there were a lot of new things that we were experiencing. Uh, I saw a snowblower for the very first time in my life. Now, if you could just try to put yourself in my shoes as a guy moving from the south to see this machine with, with snow just spouting right out of it. I mean, this is really incredible. I had never heard of snowshoeing before. I didn't know that was a thing. And I had never seen a sign warning people of frost heaves. I didn't even know that frost could heave. But this was, this was one of the new things that I was experiencing as a southern guy coming to New England. So much so that I was with a group of friends at dinner one time, and I was just displaying my utter ignorance about things New England, that one of, one of the men at the table, increasingly concerned about, about me and, and who I was, finally just looked at me and said, now, where did you come from? You know, we ask that question, where did you come from, talking about regions of the country, but we can ask that question in a bigger sense as well. Where did I come from? Where did this all come from? This is related to another very important question that we ask ourselves as humans. Where is this all going? Where did I come from? Where did everything come from? And where is it all going? And this is not just a matter of mere curiosity, right? It's not like we're just trying to think, I wonder where everything is going. Like, this is a matter of real importance because however you answer the question, where did I come from and where am I going, determines the kinds of decisions you make as a person, right? Depending on my origin and my destiny. If you're unfamiliar with the Christian message, you'll find out what we Christians believe about where everything is going. Where is all of this headed? We find this in Revelation chapter 21, and I want to read the first five verses to you. You could find it in your copy of the Scripture, or you could see it on the screen there behind me. This is written by the Apostle John about A.D. 90, when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And he's recording some visions that he saw of of the future events that God was revealing to him. And he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, these are the words that I want to direct your attention to in bold there on the screen. Behold, I am making all things new. Where is all this going? There is coming a time when God is going to make everything new. 
And we have an idea about what this newness is going to look like. We see it here in verse 4 that there shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The former things have passed away. There will be no more tears. Now, the, the question I want to put to you in how you think about, how you respond to this. A lot of people hear a statement like this and in a, in a religious text like this and, and see this statement, he is making all things new, and they, they tend to think, this is nice religious talk. This is useful truth to people if it helps them cope with the anxieties and stresses of this present world. And maybe that's the way you tend to think about this. It's just a, a nice, religious, spiritual-sounding thing that will infuse some hope in the midst of despair for people. But the question I want you to consider is, is, is this. What if this is real? What if this is where everything is really going? What if everything you see around you is really going away? What if it is true that this declaration that John records at the end of the ages is so, that the God who created the heaven and the earth will one day say, behold, I am making all things new? What if, what if that's really true? Not just in a spiritual sense, not just in an imaginary sense, not just in a hope-filled religious sense, but in a concrete reality, like the things that you're experiencing right now, they're all going away. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I want us to consider this issue of God making all things new by asking three questions. First of all, what does this have to do with this present world? What does this have to do with the resurrection of Christ? This is Easter Sunday, right? Resurrection Sunday after all. And finally, what does this have to do with me? This idea of God making all things new. Now, if you uh, attend here regularly, you know that I've been working through a series in the book of Romans, and normally when I preach, I take the magnifying glass and I put it on just a few phrases of Scripture, and I preach on those. That's the, normally the way I preach. In this, this time, I want to exposit a variety of passages of Scripture along the lines of these three questions that I think will unfold for us an understanding of where all this is going and your role in it today. So first, what does this have to do with this world? What do you think about this world? You see anything wrong with this world? You see anything just out of place about this world? Or you look around, you read the newspaper, you read the news, you're like, nope, it's all good. No problems. I like it. Perfect. You know, I've never met anybody, no matter how wealthy or intelligent or, or self-satisfied, that has ever said that this world is a perfect place. Now, I don't think you've met anybody like that either. But the interesting thing is that nobody's okay with that. It's not like we say, oh, the world's a horrible place. I'm fine with that. No, we're just not okay with that. There's a sense in our heart that says, well, things shouldn't be like that. I want them to be different. I want them to be fair. I want them to be right, right? Do you feel that way? You see injustice and unfairness and inequality around you, and you think, I want it to be right. I want there to be fairness. I want to live in a world that's, that's right. Now, I think that that should be a clue that should stop you right in your tracks. Whatever kind of person I am, whatever kind of person you are, we're people that won't be, won't be satisfied by injustice, by a world of unfairness. I was thinking about that as I was listening to a podcast this past week. It was talking about a problem that preschool teachers were having with their students. In this particular preschool, the students were having a problem, the teachers were having a problem with the students tattling so much. A constant tattling. And if you've ever worked with preschoolers, you'll know it's a lot to manage. Like all this tattling. Teacher so-and-so did this, teacher so-and-so did this. So they came up with this brilliant solution. And they installed on the wall of that preschool classroom what they called a tattle phone. And the preschoolers could come up to the tattle phone 
And they could punch a button, pick up the receiver, and they can tell that tattlephone all about what happened. Little did the preschoolers know that somebody had secured the permission of their parents to record all the injustices that went on in that classroom. It was a big plastic phone, and, and the kids just loved using this. They'd go, instead of going to the teacher, any time something unfair happened, the kids could go over to the tattle phone, and the messages came in fast and furious. Eli told me a lie. Jason wasn't sharing with me, and I don't like it, and I'm very upset. Ramon is not listening to my teacher, Mr. Evans. He's my favorite teacher. People aren't sharing the tattle phone. <laughs> they... They even apologized. Their, their sense of equity, their sense of justice was so finely tuned that they not only tattled on their fellow classmates, they even apologized for things they did to the tattle phone. Get this. One child said, I'm sorry I had to hang up on you. I'm sorry. To the tattle phone. And the podcast went on to say, there's actually scientific research on this. Kids know when something's unfair. Some when they're just 12 months old. It's like what Charles Dickens wrote in his novel, Great Expectations. I came across these recently. In the world in which children have their existence, there is nothing so finely perceived and so finely felt as injustice. You know what that's like even as an adult, right? But there was a problem with the tattle phone. It didn't do anything. And, and the preschoolers were pretty quick to pick up on this, too. In fact, a little boy named Max, he put his finger on the problem, and he said, he, he was speaking with his father in a recorded conversation, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't even do anything. And the dad said, it listened to your tattle. And Max said, no, it doesn't. The father said, what do you mean, Max? It didn't. It didn't stop Augie from pinching me. The tattle phone couldn't do anything, and it's true. You and I, and we knew this even before we could talk, we won't be satisfied with anything less than perfect justice, right? We have a very finely, sent, finely tuned sense of right and wrong, but the question that we need to consider is, well, where did that come from? Where did you get that sense of justice? Where did you get that sense of looking at the world around you and just saying, I'm not okay with this? And the common answer that we will learn about in our, in our schools is that we are the product of evolutionary forces. Over time, our impulse for survival have, has developed us to be the way we are right now, but that doesn't explain everything. That this craving for justice is more than a craving for survival. In fact, we as New Hampshireites should know that because every time we look at our vehicle license plates, we're reminded, live free or die. Now, that's not going to help evolution. We, we, we crave for more than just survival. We crave for justice. We crave for equity. We crave for everything to be right. The other answer to the question, where did this all come from, the answer that makes so much more sense is that a God of beauty and justice and goodness created us in His image to enjoy a relationship with Him. He is a God of righteousness. He is God, a God of fairness. He is a perfect God, and He created you and me to thrive in a relationship with Him perfectly forever. That is the purpose for which God created us. That explains the fact that we have this, this craving for justice, and it just so happens that this question, what does this have to do with the present world? I'm making all things new, that the craving that you have 
is for a world in which righteousness dwells, because this is what Peter is talking about in his second epistle. He says, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which, what? In which righteousness dwells, rightness, justice, equity, fairness. This will characterize the new heavens and the new earth. And it just so happens that the craving that you had when you were a baby corresponds precisely to the world in which God is making everything new. But the problem is this world isn't that way now. The Apostle Paul writes that the wages of sin is death and that death spread to all men because all sinned. And this explains all the evil and injustice in this present world. This explains why, as I, when I woke up this morning and looked at the news, there was a great tragedy in Sri Lanka, bombings in churches on Easter morning as Christians were assembled there. This is why there is so much evil, because it all started with the sin of Adam and Eve who chose to live life independently of God. And now what we are in is a cycle of sin and death. The wages of sin is death, and there is this crazy spiral of despair that we all find ourselves in. The question, what does this have to do with the present world, is that there is a problem that must be solved. There is a problem that must must be solved, and the problem is with this world, a world of injustice. The problem is a problem with us, our own hearts. But suppose that God loved this world so much that He sent His only Son. Suppose that He loved the world so much that He sent His only Son to die for the sins of the people in that world? What if He sent Jesus to show them the life of a perfect man who lived always doing the things that pleased His Father? And this is exactly what God did when He sent Jesus, the Messiah, born in the first century A.D., He lived that life of justice and beauty and fairness that we all crave for. But He did more than that. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He made astonishing claims about Himself. He said this, Jesus of Nazareth said said this about Himself, no one can come to the Father except through Me. That's an amazing claim. The way to get to God, you want to know how to get to God? This is what Jesus said. You have to come through Me. You can't be neutral to that kind of claim. And so out of Jealousy and fear, the religious leaders of the time brought Jesus on trumped-up charges to the Roman authorities, and there they condemned Him to death and crucified Him. And here's where we get to the second question. What does this have to do with the resurrection? Remember, the, the question is this whole idea of God making all things new, the whole idea of where is all this going? Okay, what does this have to do with the present world? Well, you and I look around us. We look within us. There is injustice. There is unfairness. There is inequity. And we need a solution. What does this have to do with the resurrection? Remember, I told you that Jesus was executed. It was one of the cruelest forms of execution conceived by the Romans. He was wrapped in grave clothes and put in a tomb. It's important to understand that Jesus was really dead. He really died. This was not just a hallucination that the disciples had. This was not just that Jesus swooned. He really died. There was the blood loss. There was the asphyxiation. There was the final jab of the spear in his side. There was no question that Jesus was really dead. But on the third day, something happened that changed the course of history. And something happened that that you cannot ignore. The tomb was empty. 
Jesus came out. Jesus rose from the dead. And people saw him. Peter saw him. John saw him. The women at the tomb saw him. The Bible tells us that the group of 11 disciples saw him. Paul tells us later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the earliest documented evidence of, of the resurrection is that there was a group of over 500 people that saw him. And at the time of Paul's writing that letter, over half of them were still alive so that the recipients of the letter could go and check and talk to first account witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no question that Jesus rose from the dead, the tomb was empty, and he was alive. Isn't it interesting that the religious leaders who hated the idea that Jesus could be claimed to be alive, they circulated the rumor that the disciples had stolen the body and claimed that Jesus had raised from the dead. They couldn't produce the body to disprove it. They couldn't show anybody, hey, you say that he's alive. No, here's his body right here. They could not produce it, so they had to come up with a story that the disciples stole the body, and they bribed the guards to do it. Not even Jesus' bitterest enemies could undo the news that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so it is that the resurrection of Christ is, is like this aha moment. Once you, once you understand what's going on, it's like the key that finally turns the lock. See, death could not defeat Jesus because He was the sinless Son of God. Remember we talked about what's wrong with this world, where's everything going? This world is in a mess because people have fallen into sin, and because of the sin, the wages of sin is death. But for Jesus Christ, there was no sin, and therefore death could not defeat Him because He was a sinless Son of God. Death had no power over Jesus. The reason why He died was so that He could suffer in the place of you and me who have sinned. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. And the resurrection was God's definitive proof that Jesus is who He claimed to be, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no one that could approach God apart from Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the final definitive proof in, in history, not just imaginary, not just in a spiritual sense, that Jesus is the Son of God, that death has been defeated. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I refer to this, and, and it was read earlier, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, Paul writes." The Apostle Paul stood before a skeptical crowd where philosophers and skeptics and intellectuals would gather and discuss ideas, and he preached to them the resurrection of Christ. And he said this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, we've been talking about righteousness, by a man whom He has appointed. Who's that man? Jesus Christ. What proof do we have that that is the man that God has appointed to be the judge in righteousness of everyone? It is this. 
the proof, the assurance that he's given is he raised him from the dead. That is God's definitive proof intersecting with history, breaking into our present world, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He will stand as the judge of every human being who ever lived, and that God is going to make everything new one day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you could think of our universe like like a, a dark dome in which we're all living in the cycle of sin and death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like this massive crack in the dome through which the light of an eternal day begins to dawn. And this is why Paul calls the resurrection of Christ the first fruits from the dead. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Why? Because those who believe in Jesus Christ really belong to the new heavens and the new earth. Death cannot overtake them just as death could not overcome Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is the definitive proof, the assurance that God's appointed man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the judge who one day will decide the eternal fate of every human being who ever lived. I'm making all things new, God says. What does this have to do with the present world? It's a place of injustice. It's a place of unfairness. And yet the new heavens and the new earth is a place where righteousness dwells. And God has given us assurance of this by raising Jesus from the dead. This is the proof that cannot be ignored. There's a third question. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Remember how we talked about our need for justice? Remember we talked about the fact that you and I are not the sort of people that can be satisfied by unfairness? We want things to be right. Isn't that true? We want justice. But justice is a double-edged sword. You really want justice? You really want to be called account for everything that you've done? We talk about justice. I'm happy to talk about the justice for everybody else out there. But once we start talking about justice in here, I'm in trouble. Because the problem with the world is not just a problem with everybody else. I mean, there is, there is a craving for justice woven right into the fabric of your heart, but there is also injustice woven into the fabric of your heart too. Have you ever realized that if God fails to enforce justice, the world will never be a perfect place? But if God does enforce justice, you will never be a part of it. That's a double-edged sword. But this is exactly why Jesus died on the cross for you. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ, the righteous, sinless Son of God, died in the place of sinners so that God can be completely just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. See, we, not, we need not only justice, we need mercy too. How can we get mercy? Only through Jesus. Only because Jesus died on the cross for us. Only because in the cross there was this outpouring of, of both love and righteousness, of truth and mercy. Only in the cross of Christ, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's love on fullest display because Jesus did die for us and His righteousness is on fullest display because it did take the death of Jesus Christ to make us right. That is the gospel, my friends. That is the message that you need to hear and that you need to believe that even though you and I are so badly flawed because of our sin, there is hope in Jesus. He has died on the cross for our sin and by believing in Him, we 
can be saved. We can be new creations. That is the gospel. And that's what you must do. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? It means that the most urgent need you have is to put all your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior from your sin. That's the most urgent thing. This is not something that you could be neutral toward. Jesus stands at the very center of history. He stands at the center of the universe because He is the one that will determine your eternal destiny. Where where did you come from? You're created by God to have a relationship with God. Where are you going? That depends. It depends. You cannot be neutral. You can't even stand at a polite distance. This is what a lot of people want to do. They want to be like, I think I like Jesus, but I'm just going to keep my distance. That's not an option. Why is it not an option? Because he rose from the dead. What he said is true. See, most people like to see Jesus as one among many of, of wise, respected sages of human history. But Jesus cannot be wise and respected if he said the things he did, and it's false. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I and the Father are one. You you cannot stand at a respectful distance or a safe distance. He's not that kind of person. He is the kind of person that confronts you. It says you have to make a choice when you're confronted by Christ. To either embrace Him and trust Him or reject Him. But you cannot just stand politely to the side. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, anyone. You can do that. You can do that this morning if you've never done it. You could call on the name of Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose for me. I believe that the reason why you died was for my sin, and Jesus will save you. That's a promise. And it can be true of you that if you're in Christ you can be a new, a new creature, a new creation. If you're still open to Revelation chapter 21, I read to you for the first five verses. I did not read to you the verses that precede that because they're among the most sobering words in Scripture. And if anyone's name, this is verse 15 of chapter 20, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. That will be true. One of the most sobering reminders that something is wrong with this world is when we visit a cemetery. Have you ever done that? Dozens, hundreds of stones etched with a name, a date, a little dash, and another date. And one day, if Christ doesn't return before, one day there will be a stone with your name on it. The date of your birth, another date, it could be 2019, you don't know, I don't know, but you're not prepared for that final date until you know what you're going to do about Jesus, because He calls to you to repentance. Other people have done this, an extremely, extremely religious man in the first century, on his way to a city a Middle Eastern city, to persecute people that follow Jesus. The last thing he was expecting was to be confronted by the risen Jesus. And yet the Apostle Paul was 
was struck down by blinding light, and, and Jesus himself spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that day, Paul believed in Jesus, and you can too. But how do you do it? You should know that Jesus' call is simple. He calls you to believe in Him, but it's also radical. It means abandoning yourself. It means abandoning all your efforts to find goodness and satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment in yourself and, and throwing yourself in trust on Jesus. That's what it means to follow Him. It's not adding Jesus to your life like you add a job or a hobby or a spouse or anything else. This is, this is not adding something to your life. This is abandoning yourself for another person. This is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. It's a radical call. But I will tell you, once you understand the value of Jesus, you will not consider it a sacrifice at all. Because Jesus himself gave this little parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure in a field so excited about it that he sells everything he has and buys the field so he could have the treasure. That's what it's like to find Jesus. It's like it's worth, it's worth abandoning everything you have because what you find in Jesus is more than everything you have. It is more. It's not adding something to your life. It's abandoning everything you are, all your attempts to find satisfaction and meaning and joy and delight and self-justification, which we all love to do in yourself, and finding it in Jesus instead. That's what it means to trust in Him. Would you do that today? Would you do that this morning? You can. Jesus calls you to because He is the risen Christ, and you cannot be neutral toward Him. You should bow your head and close your eyes, and I'm going to talk to you just a bit more and then pray. We do have a couple more songs.